Morning, everyone. It's good all the young ones have gone. Now we're just left with us, the oldies. Great people. <clears throat> if I could see you all, it's good. Can we pray? And Father, we thank you this morning for the privilege of being called your people. We thank you for the privilege of life. We thank you for the joy of serving you. And we pray that you'd watch over this time now, that you would speak into each of our hearts and minds and grant to us understanding, greater understanding of you and your call and your purpose. For we ask it for Jesus' sake. <clears throat> Amen. <clears throat> I think I've got one of those throats too. It's good to hear about Luke, isn't it? It's... Um, it's quite interesting, you know, when you go to Congo, you don't really feel any particular danger because the people there protect us from most of those dangers. That's not to say that it's not dangerous, but it's a lot less dangerous. And it's hard for us to imagine the situations that um, these folks live in, uh, whether it be uh, threatened because you're being good or whether it being raped because you happen to be in the wrong place at the right time, whether you're chopped up with a machete, is something, these things are things that, generally speaking, we have less understanding of. And so it's an incredible privilege for us to, to live in this country and also to be able to bless the people that live in these countries that are less fortunate than we are. Sometimes we sort of imagine that they're slightly less human than we are because they're different colour and they live in a different place. But the interesting thing is when you get there and you meet them and you get to know them, they're just like us. It's just that most of them don't have anything. When I say they don't have anything, I mean they don't have anything except life and a dirty T-shirt and a pair of shorts. Maybe, maybe a pair of shoes. But you know, the ones that know Christ are filled with joy. And it really speaks to our hearts that it's not having stuff that makes us happy. It's knowing God that makes us happy. <clears throat> so this morning, I'd like to speak to you about faith. Darren's spoken to us about love, but love doesn't do much for us without faith. And I want to speak about this issue of faith, for faith is a living dynamic. Faith is a relational gift from God. You do not have faith that is not given to you. Indeed, you don't have anything that is not given to you by God. We so often forget about that and we think that we have faith. The only faith you have is the faith that God puts in your heart which has the ability to be exercised. And when we exercise our faith, we consider that it's ours. But it's a gift from God. So is love. So is everything else. Faith is a gift from God that enables the human being 
to proceed into the future with understanding, to be able to conceive of the future. You see, it seems to me that animals, and particularly goldfish, don't perceive of the future. They just live in a present. But human beings are able to project into the future and imagine what that's going to be. And faith, if you like, is the vehicle that allows us to go there. It's an incredible gift. It's so much more than just a thing that you have that you get benefits from. It's a significant aspect of reality and of life. And if we don't have that reality, then we're going to miss out. See, the interesting thing is that although Christians have a special gift of faith, every human being has faith. We have faith that the chair that we were sitting that we're sitting on, or I was sitting on, is going to hold us. We just walk up to the chair and sit in it. If it doesn't hold us, we're shocked and often injured in the process of that. When we plan for a marriage, as I hear some folks here are planning for marriage, <clears throat> for a marriage, um, it's in the future, but we're planning for it. There's a dimension of faith that's involved in taking us into that place in the future. I have a granddaughter that's getting married in a month or so. Thank you. And uh, we're sort of looking forward to that. It's her first granddaughter to be married. We have a grandson that's married and we have some great-grandchildren, but <clears throat> this is a special time that we're looking forward to. Now, that natural faith that God gives to every person is a wonderful gift from God, as I said, because it enables us to look into the future. Every human being can look into the future. You don't have to be a Christian to do that. It's just that if you're not a Christian, you probably don't have a very good view of what the future might be. If you're a Christian, you have an expectation of the future, which is victory. Um, could I suggest that it's victory on this planet? We're not just waiting for heaven. It's victory on this planet. But I'm not allowed to talk about that sort of thing because that sort of theology gets me into trouble. So we can abuse the gift of faith that we've been entrusted with and we can create our own gods to believe in and to look forward to and to trust in. Most of those, well, all of those gods are a human construct. That is, there's something that we've made up in our minds so that the god of the Hindus or the gods of the Hindus are made up by fertile human minds and you have to be very fertile in the mind to imagine most of the Hindu gods. Many of them are significantly ugly and it's a most ugly faith. So is the case with almost every other faith you can imagine. The only one that has a sort of a foundation, if you like, in, in the God that we trust is the faith of Islam, which is a complete perversion of God and his ways and his relationships with us. But this faith that we have, most people who wander the earth these days have faith in themselves. It's called humanism. If you don't have a particular God that you've created for yourself, you're probably worshipping yourself because you believe that you're better than any of the other gods around the place. The only problem is that you're all alone in that faith. See, if you're a humanist, you have to be of yourself. 
and you're the God. Now, it becomes a bit of a challenge when you have to consider that other people might consider they're a God too. And that then creates some problems for us. But And I could go into talking about that for the rest of the day, but we shan't. Faith is in something. The Christian faith is placed in the almighty God, the Trinitarian God, the almighty God who knows everything, who is almighty, who determines where everything is going to go, who has planned your life from beginning to end, whether you like it or not, and it will work out exactly the way he intends, whether you're liking it or not. If you know Christ, you then understand that there's a thing called grace, which gives your life purpose and direction and planned intention from God. Our God is a sovereign God. He rules over everything. We sang a song about the Lord being the king of our life. He's not just the king of your life. He's the king. He's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. There's nothing that he doesn't have authority over. When God gave his authority to Jesus, who was, as it were, a man at the time as well as being God, Jesus said that uh, he was giving all authority to us, God's authority. But the whole of authority is held, continues to be held by God, of course. And our faith is in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Saviour, who is God, who became man. He died and he rose from the dead. The great hope of the Christian faith is that Jesus Christ is risen. And so are you. And so our hope, when we say our hope is in Christ, our hope is in his resurrection. It's not a faint hope. It's not a hope that may not be true. It's a hope we look forward to that we experience the fullness of his resurrection at some time in the future. And we believe too in the indwelling Holy Spirit, which is an even greater miracle. And we, even as Pentecostals, we tend not to celebrate the majesty, the greatness of the Holy Spirit, who is the third person of the Trinity, but who comes to dwell within us. And God makes a great fuss about coming to dwell within us. He changes us. He gives us a new language, for example. He releases his power in us because he dwells within us. Perhaps most importantly, he speaks to us. He doesn't speak in a sounding voice from heaven. He speaks in our heart because that's where he's dwelling. He's in us. He guides our lives. Better said, he governs our lives. Jesus doesn't send the Holy Spirit to just give you some advice. He comes and sends the Holy Spirit to run the show for you because you made a terrible mess of your life, as I did. And the only reason that we're on a reasonably right track is that God has sent his spirit, his power, his authority to dwell within us, to guide us day by day, moment by moment. He's speaking to you now. Are you listening? Are we aware of, are we attuned to the reality of the presence of God with us 
in Christ. And so our faith, our faith is placed in these three persons of the Trinity of God and their character, which is great and almighty. Because the scripture says in Habakkuk, you might like to be turning up the book of Habakkuk um, while I'm speaking. If you want to find Habakkuk, you go to the divide between the Old and New Testament and you go back about 15 or 20 pages, just five little books to the book of Habakkuk. Some people saw, call it Habakkuk. Um, it, does, it doesn't really matter whichever way you go as long as you can find it there in your Bible. And there's a scripture there in Habakkuk that says, the just shall live by faith. The just, those who are justified, shall live by faith. In Habakkuk it says we will live by his faith. When it's quoted in the New Testament, it tends to say the just shall live by faith. What does that mean? Well, that's exactly what I'm hoping to explore for us this morning. Now, the scripture in Habakkuk is a, is a messianic scripture. In fact, most of the prophets of the Old Testament, the prophecies of the Old Testament are messianic in their character. That is, they're speaking to us of Jesus. There's not a lot, really, in the Old Testament prophets that's not te teaching us something about the Lord Jesus Christ. And likewise, we find here in Habakkuk that he's doing the same thing. Now, we'll see how we go. I should be able to read this, but I'll put these on because then I'll be sure to be able to read it. And in chapter 2, Habakkuk's been talking to the Lord about various things that he's supposed to be doing and so on. And the Lord says in verse 2 of Habakkuk chapter 2, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, that he may run who reads it, for the vision is yet for an appointed time, but at the end it will speak and it will not lie, though it tarries, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. What is the vision? The vision is Christ. The vision is our Messiah who's going to come amongst us. Verse 4, Behold the proud, he is, his soul is not upright, in him, but the just shall live by his faith. And this is a prophetic sort of statement. It's not that the Old Testament people didn't have faith, but there is coming a new dimension of faith where God himself comes to dwell within us and we live by faith. We live by the authority of the one who has come to dwell within us. It's not about us. It's him. He has changed us. He has completely transformed our lives in a manner that I don't understand. If he'd have whipped us off to heaven when we were born again, I'd understand it better, I think. But he didn't. He left us here. We're still the same person that is capable of sin, that is capable of acting independently, that is capable of messing up and ultimately destroying our lives. And yet, we've been given a gift of faith. The Holy Spirit has come to dwell within us and we are changed. We are transformed. We are born again. We are different now than we used to be. We sort of look the same. We just smile a bit more. We still get sick. We still get old. 
We still die, but we die in Christ. And there is just a subtle difference between dying in Christ and dying without him. The terror of dying without Christ is unspeakable. The fear of death is incredibly powerful. Mankind today has done everything he can to try and remove that fear, to overcome that fear. He fills his life with all the rubbish you can imagine, but you can never escape that one day you're going to stop breathing and you'll die as a physical human being. But like Christ, you will be raised in newness of life him. The trick is that we sort of have that now, but we still have to go through this death process. And you might like to explore that sometime in your moments of philosophizing and see if you can figure it out. I'm not sure that I have. Now, so we have this scripture in Habakkuk. It's quoted three times in the New Testament. One is in Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. You might like to quickly turn to that if you can find it. Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. Now, Romans chapter 1 is an incredibly wonderful chapter in the Scripture. Now, I want to start at verse 16 where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Now it's interesting in the the first chapter of Romans that he stops there and he starts off in verse 18 by saying, for the wrath of God. And then he goes on that passage that's very famous in these days that speaks about the horrendous sins of mankind. And in that particular chapter he highlights the sin of homosexuality. Now, we live in a world today where we're told that's not a sin. However, it seems that God hasn't caught up with that revelation yet. And it may be that he never will. So Romans chapter 1 and verse 17 repeats this scripture again from Habakkuk. Why? Because he's speaking in the first instance back in Habakkuk about what Christ is going to do in our lives. And again in Romans he's speaking about what Christ is going to do in our lives. So faith is a relationship, it's a trusting relationship with the superior and the superior is God, is God. And he is the one who creates everything, who knows everything. The scripture says we cast our care on him for he cares for us. Why on earth should the creator of the universe care for me or for that matter for you? There is nothing attractive about you despite what you think about yourself. From God's perspective there is nothing, nothing attractive about me or you. You see, it's grace through faith, bringing love. That's who God is. 
sin made us ugly, exceedingly ugly, because at root, sin is rebellion against God. And how any human being could rebel against its creator, the lover of our soul, the one who has provided everything for us. Even if we're in sin, he still provides the air for us to breathe. He still allows our bodies to function pretty well. And we reject him. We turn our backs on him. We say, thanks very much for the offer, but I can do it better myself. That is wickedness, absolute wickedness. Don't worry about any other sins. You really can't get any worse than that. The others are just manifestations of putting yourself in that position. So what is the man like? What is it, what is it that we are that we can have faith? God created a man, us, in his image. He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them, and they were called man. I won't go into that. We are made in his image, and sin spoiled the image. We still look like people, but we're separated from God. But God of course, had a plan of redemption. The Christian Godhead, the Trinity, in which we have three persons who are equally God and equal one with another. These three persons, each member of which plays a unique role in a family. And this is incredibly important for us to understand, that God is not one in the sense of being one person. He is one in intent and character, but he is three in terms of persons. And those persons, those three persons, have perfect unity. Perfect unity. And they are a family. And the family who is God is meant to be a picture for us of what family that is human is meant to be. That's the goal for each of our human families. So God in his creative genius created us male and female and that makes man. And male and female come together and they reproduce and continue the, the race, the human race. But when you, when you marry and when you have a family, you begin to discover what love is about. Love doesn't mean anything to us as human beings unless there was an object for that love. And the object that God has given us is the woman, given me, is the woman. And there's something happens to us that God has given us as a gift. It's called in the vernacular falling in love. And it's overpowering, overwhelming. Myriads of songs have been sung. Myriads of fortunes have been lost, etc., 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 because of the love between a man and a woman. It's incredibly powerful because it pictures for us something of the love that is between the three persons of the, of the Godhead. 
and something of the love that God has for us that I could never understand without a practical understanding of that. And then we have children, and we love our children because they're a product of the love that we have together as husband and wife. Now, all of that was designed and created by God so that we could know him, so that we could understand his intentions and his purposes. That's the gift that he's given to us as human beings. So we are designed by God to live in him, in his family, and that can only happen by faith. You were never destined to go to hell. You were never meant, designed to go to hell. You were always designed to be part of his family. But there's no way you could be because you'd mucked it up and sinned. You'd you'd rejected him. You'd distanced yourself from God. And so God had to make a way for us to come back to him because sin had utterly and completely separated us from God, that we couldn't even conceive what it is to be a human being. You only begin to understand what it is to be a human being when you're born again. Sure, you have an understanding that you're a person and so on, but you don't have any concept of why you were created and who you really are until God arrests you and borns you again. So we're redeemed through faith in Christ. We have been saved by faith that we might live in faith and by faith, but sin robbed us of that dynamic of life that God intended for us. Hopefully we have all discovered that. And if you haven't, don't go home today without discovering it for yourself. We were never designed to live out of our independent reason or out of the brain that is so incredible that God has entrusted to us. It is not wired in such a way that you can understand God. You never will understand God until the Holy Spirit comes and he puts the wiring in place. So, wow. Jesus is not a swear word. He is God. He is a saviour. He loves me. How do you get to know that? It's a miracle. It's the greatest miracle that a human being can experience. The world says, pity about Darren, he's got religion. What they're saying is there's something happened to him that's changed him. He can't be the same again. God has done something profound in his life. And it's come to us through faith. We were never designed to do our own thing. We were always designed to do his thing as part of his family for his kingdom, for his will to be done on the earth. Can't happen any other way. So being born again is so much more than going to heaven when you die, so much more than an insurance policy. We're only just beginning if we start thinking that way. We will never, ever understand God. 
if we see salvation as a fire insurance policy. The Bible uses words like transformed, translated, born again, regenerated, a new creation. He uses a lot of different words to try and get across the idea that getting saved or being saved is the most profound experience that a human being can have. But it's not just an experience in a moment, it's an experience that leads you into eternity, but the eternity starts now, when you're born again. Because it's a new life that God has called us to live. There's become popular teachings throughout the church that you get saved and you sort of hang around here on earth because it's a pretty miserable, sinful sort of place and then eventually Jesus will come and rescue you and take you home to heaven and you have completely missed the point of Christ coming because he came for humanity that lives on planet earth. There is a purpose that God has for this place. And you're part of the purpose. We're not just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back because I've got a surprise for you. He won't be coming back in your lifetime or mine or the children's. We haven't hardly begun to do the job that he intends for his church to do in the earth. There's been amazing things happen. Started off 2,000 years ago with a dozen people, perhaps a bit more than that in the upper room. And today, around about half the world's population claim Christianity. We're talking billions of people. Could it ever be that everyone would know Christ on this planet? And could it be that that would herald the return of Jesus for his glorious bride? I don't know. I don't think I'll be around at that particular occasion because there's quite a lot of work to do before that would ever happen. But it's a new life that we live and that new life is lived by faith. It is not lived by reason. It is not lived out of your smart little brain because it's not given the capacity to do that. God didn't entrust that to you. That's why he sent the Holy Spirit to dwell within you. He's your wisdom. doesn't mean your brain doesn't operate. Of course it does. But we're not submitted to our brain. We're submitted to the Holy Spirit who dwells in us so that we can find the purpose and the call of God for our lives. And goodness me, the time always goes so jolly quickly. We're not just believing in Christ. We're living in him. Paul repeatedly uses the term in Christ. And we were found in Christ and something or other in Christ. In Christ. Over and over again, what is he talking about? He's talking about you being indwelt by the Holy Spirit who is representing Christ in your life. Because when Jesus went back to the Father, they together sent the Holy Spirit to come on the day of Pentecost for the purpose of dwelling within human beings. 
That is the great miracle. That's why Pentecost is so incredibly important. That's why the day of Pentecost was marked by such dramatic events. The rushing mighty wind. The tongues of fire that rested on their heads. And they all found themselves changed because they're speaking in a language they've never learned. It's a miracle, you see. And God wanted us to understand that this coming of the Holy Spirit is a miraculous event for you because we couldn't believe it without him, couldn't even begin to conceive of it. What God has done is so far beyond any sinful person's comprehension. But God did it. And one day you woke up to yourself and you woke up born again. You didn't ask God. You didn't pray about it. He just did it. Despite you. Because he loved you and he called you and he chose you. And as we said, there was nothing attractive about you. So why he chose me, why he chose you, I have no idea. Perhaps when you get to heaven, you could ask him. He may not answer, but you could ask him, I guess. Okay, so the cross is about restoring us, redeeming us to God, buying us back to him, to the place we were created to be in the first place. Now, God reveals this to us in the scriptures, and I need to move quickly because I should finish at half past, right? Should? Okay, so in John chapter 17, this is Jesus' prayer to the Father. This is one of those scriptures that reveals the heart. This is before the, the crucifixion. And Jesus prays to the Father. And it's recorded by John. I don't know how John got to figure all this out, but that's another story. So we get to verse 21 of John 17. And Jesus is praying to the Father. And he says that they all may be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in you. You see, we're a family, the Godhead. That they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. What's the testimony that convinces the world? It's you. It's you. It's your life. That's God's representative now. You see, Jesus has gone back to the Father, but it's the Holy Spirit who dwells in you. It's the Holy Spirit who causes you to be one with the Father and the Son, causes us to be part of the family of God. It doesn't make us God. It makes us part of the family of God. Listen as he goes on to verse 22, And the glory which you gave me, that's Jesus, I have given them that they may be one, just as we are one. You got your head around it at all? Or your heart? That they may be made perfect in one. What one was? We are in Christ. We have been regenerated. And that the world may know that you, as you have loved me, that's Jesus' prayer. Help us understand what the heart and intent of God is. 
Now, either this is the most absurd lie that's ever been told, or it's the truth. And if it's the truth, it embraces you in something which is so far beyond you that you can't conceive of it. It sets you on a journey of exploration, of revelation, beyond anything that that a human being without Christ could ever even begin to imagine. We truly are a privileged people. Truly. Moving on. God the Trinity has embraced us in Christ to be part of his family. We inherit this relationship which is accessed by faith. The gift of faith comes from God. It changes our heart. And we see things differently because we're seeing them through the eye of faith, not through the reason of man. And the whole of our Christian life is lived through the eye of faith. It is reality. This is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. This is not fertile imagination stuff. This is not Christians who have lost the marbles. Yes, sure, we've lost those marbles, but the ones we've got now are much better than the ones we used to have. You see, faith is your connection to reality. What you've been living in before you came to Christ, it's darkness, it's emptiness. Reality is Christ, and the connection to Christ is stand him, because we could never understand him out of this. This is not very your brain. Incredible gift of God, but it's not clever enough. It changes us. And incidentally, Romans 12 goes on and speaks to us about renewing our minds in the word of God so that we understand this stuff. But faith is the key. Now, Paul writes of the imperative of living by faith in Ephesians. Listen to this. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. is so far beyond what this can ever conceive of, but you are to us. Indeed, all knowledge, true knowledge, the book, in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, For we walk by faith. And we think, what on earth is that about? How do you walk by faith? Is it you wear different shoes or what is it that you're up to with that? Not by sight. Not out of your senses, your five senses, your rational understanding is going to lead you to death. But when the Holy Spirit comes, he changes that. And we see it differently because we're seeing it by faith. And we live our whole life by faith. When you get up in the morning, you go about what you're going about by faith in God on the basis that he has a plan for tomorrow for you. That, Lord, you've already worked out this day. I'm just exploring and and discovering the wonderful things that you've planned for me for the day that's ahead. And that's the way we're meant to live out of him, out of his authority, out of his power and who he is. And that's why we're not terribly important, but he is. Listen to what, he, what Paul writes in Corinthians. He says, I have been crucified 
with Christ. Now, incidentally, when you're crucified, you're dead. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, you with him? The life that I now live in the flesh, I'm still in this body. I still look very much like I used to look like. I still have the constraints that I used to have in many ways. Uh, you know, if you want to jump off a tall building or something or other, you'll find out that um, you've got a problem. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Hebrews 10.38 picks up on that scripture from Habakkuk and it says, Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. That's not meant to be a judgment against us. It's meant to be stating the obvious to us. Now the just will live by faith, but if anyone draws back from Christ... My soul has no pleasure in him because what you're doing is trying to separate yourself from Christ. How can Christ have any pleasure in that? He has only pleasure when you walk with him and you seek after him. You bring joy to his heart. makes you part of his family. And there's no constraint on any one of us. Every one of us are called to live by faith. If you've been trying to live your Christian life out of figuring it out, stop. It doesn't work. You're not that way anymore. You've been changed by the power of God. Living by faith is an imperative for Christians. It's the only way for Christians to live. Now, tragically, there are many people in the church who don't. But they're not really advertising Christianity. They're advertising something else because Christianity is about a transformed life. So, by faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, which though he had obtained witness that was righteous, that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead, still speaks, Cain, uh, sorry, Abel offered to God an acceptable sacrifice. What was his sacrifice? He offered it by faith. He offered it by faith. That's what the chapter 11 of Hebrews is about. All the people, it begins with the, each verse begins with the, the two words, by faith. By faith, Abraham. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which were seen were not made of things that are visible. By faith, verse 6 begins like this, Without faith it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that what's meant to happen is that you're born again of the Spirit of God, your heart is changed, your mind is changed, all you want to do is serve Christ. That's what he's speaking about here, that we diligently seek after him. 
If we don't, what's wrong with us? Have we been born again? Because if we've been born again of the Spirit of God, we will seek after him. Sure, we'll have some moments where we miss the point, where we do some dumb things, but fundamentally we're seeking after him. If you don't know that, maybe, maybe because you haven't been born again. There are thousands upon thousands of people who call themselves Christians, who go to church regularly, have never been born again. Because it changes us. Changes us. If you don't have a heart that says, I want to serve Christ with all my life, God's not going to condemn you at this point. He's going to say, please, come to know me, and then you'll want to serve me with all your heart. Praise God. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of faith. Thank you for the incredible gift of faith. Would you use that gift that you've entrusted to us to cause us to walk in faithfulness with you and to enjoy the delights of serving you in this life. We praise you for this incredible privilege. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Thank you, Peter.